Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. Today, we're talking about all things and countries, Asia. Today's interview looks at why Australia and India could be the best developed and emerging markets, respectively, for investors and gives three key benefits to allocating to the region. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Jason Pidcock, manager of the elite race Jupiter Asian Income Fund. Jason, once again, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Um, Let's start with China. It seems a logical place. Um, you obviously came out in July last year with your view on China, um, which I'll ask you to explain in a moment in terms of the zero weighting. Could you? In, you've also sort of hinted that you're unlikely to invest again as long as Xi Jinping is in, is in charge. Um, maybe just tell us why that is, and you know now his term's been renewed. It, you know, it, is there anything that might shift your view in terms of what's happening there, or, or do you feel it's sort of just too much of a risk. There, there are so many other countries in the region that uh, have exciting investment opportunities where we're comfortable with the political system um, and we like the, com- the businesses themselves, some of whom sell their goods and services into China. So we don't feel the need to invest directly in mainland Chinese companies, and we're likely to keep that weighting at zero for for some time. Um, We're uncomfortable with the political system of China. It is, of course, uh, a communist dictatorship. It doesn't have the type of rule of law that we recognize. It doesn't have an independent judiciary. Um, it, It seems that it has become a bit more repressive domestically, and of course, geopolitically, Tensions between the West and China have have increased, and that that may worsen. So we just don't see the need to go there. Um, we're very comfortable with many of the other countries in the region. Uh, we, we like um, Australia, India, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, uh, and a couple, we have a couple of investments elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So there, there's no shortage. Of, of of countries in the region that harbour um, companies where we think the growth outlook is good. They've got strong balance sheets. They've got good business models, and and where they can see a wider marketplace than just their the, the domestic, um, just the country they're they're, they're domiciled in. Okay. Does does the breadth of opportunity come into the fact it come into your sort of mindset then? I.e., you know maybe. I don't know, 10 years ago, perhaps you couldn't say ignore China, perhaps as you are now. And and second part of the question would be, you know, are there any factors that would tempt you back in? I mean, if valuations became so attractive that you just couldn't ignore them, is that possible? Maybe just touch on that as well, please. Well, the first part of your question, with hindsight, I, I wish I'd had less invested in China over the last uh, decade. <laughs> Chinese equities um really they've been serial underperformers uh, and they performed very bad compared to the higher gdp growth rate of china uh which has of course done better than many other countries so it just goes to show you 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 shouldn't invest in gdp numbers um they, they often don't translate um and we've seen much better returns in many of the other markets uh, in, in in the region and um, australia again is is one place that often surprises people and just how well it's done and i think since the year 1900 it's been the best equity market in the world just eclipsing uh, that of the us but in, in the last uh, 30 years i've been investing in this region for for 30 years since i started australia has massively outperformed china um, as it has done over the last five years. Um, in terms of whether we may go 
back into China, um, it's highly unlikely, even if valuations become supposedly more attractive, because you don't want to get trapped just by a low valuation if, if, if there's a risk that things can change and become worse. Um, there is, of course, some correlation between stocks across the region. And if, if, if some kind of event happened which lowered Lowered weight, uh, lowered valuations everywhere. Include uh, then just because China has become cheaper, it may not be relatively more attractive to, to to other markets that may also have become cheaper. So we, we just we don't feel uncomfortable with the zero weighting in China. It's not as it doesn't make us feel nervous or exposed. Um, and so the the idea that we may have to go back in just because it becomes a bit more. Uh, a bit cheaper is is not something we're worried about. Uh, you mentioned Australia there and the best performance since 1900. I mean, let's take it from today. I mean, I, I've seen before people saying that it's almost appeared re- recession proof in a way. Australia. I mean, you've got about a third of the fund in that in those companies. What do you specifically like about them as we speak at the moment? One one reason why Australia has avoided recessions when there have been cycles where many other countries have seen recessions over the last few decades is that even when uh, GDP per capita takes a dip, the GDP rate for the country as a whole has still often gone up because of the demographics of Australia. Australia has one of the fastest growing populations in the world. In percentage terms, Australia's population is growing faster than that of India. Mm-hmm. And that's part, there was a pause during the COVID period, but it but it but they've opened uh, opened up again. I think in the last twelve months, something like six hundred and fifty thousand people have emigrated to Australia, um, and that's on a population of about twenty five million. So it's quite a, makes quite a big difference. And Australia, they're quite fussy when in terms of who they allow in, and broadly, it's people that are highly skilled and or are already quite wealthy. So by and large, it's people who can turn up and contribute positively to the economy from day one. So that's quite different from population growth because of a higher birth rate, where you have to wait 20 years or so from someone to be being born to being able to contribute to the economy. Um, so that, that has made uh, quite a difference. Australia is a land of professionally managed private uh, companies, you will struggle to find a state-owned enterprise on uh, listed in Australia, um, and it is like a small version of the US. So it, it's a federalised democracy; it's a fully functioning democracy, um, and it has a lot of first, second, third generation immigrants, people who are very industrious, very ambitious, want to get on, want to improve themselves, and they have a, a, a political system that allows them to do that freely. Um, unemployment is very low. Government debt to GDP in Australia is low by developed world standards. Australia retains a AAA sovereign credit rating. And we find a lot of companies, a lot of businesses there that, well, most of them are very concerned about shareholder returns. Uh, and they do manage the balance sheet effectively and they do have attractive uh, dividend yields. So, as you say, we've got roughly a third of the portfolio in Australia. We've got 10 of our 30 holdings are Australian businesses, and they're spread between companies that give us exposure to domestic demand in Australia, regional demand, 
and global demand. So we, we, we do have a mixture of, of different companies in, in Australia. It's not that we are only investing in one or two different sectors. We have quite broad uh, exposure. Do you, just quickly before, before we move on, in terms of that, so it's for domestic, regional and global demand, is that something you look for across the portfolio? Not necessarily. So there are some countries where we're really more focused on domestic consumption, and that would include countries like India and Indonesia. And there are some countries where we favor the exporters because they have a particular uh, competitive advantage in a certain sector. So in Taiwan, for example, uh, all three companies that we invest in there, uh, they earn the bulk of their earnings are from outside of Taiwan. They are global exporters. Um, so Taiwan and India, Indonesia, very, very different. Somewhere like Singapore, South Korea, Australia, kind of in between, they have, have both. Let, let, let's go a bit deeper on India because you mentioned it there. Obviously, you've got some sort of chunky weight into Indian companies and they are perhaps not necessarily synonymous with dividends, maybe more with growth, but it, it, is that culture changing or are you trying to sort of getting on the ground floor on those dividends given some of the you know the stability and, and some of the traits associated with india that perhaps other emerging markets don't have you're right in that india is off, is not associated with with dividend yields and it does have a relatively low yield uh, compared to other markets in the region and that's partly because the dividend payout ratio is lower and partly because valuations are higher than elsewhere so the average yield or the market yield in india is about one and a half percent the yield that we're achieving from the stocks we own is about three percent so we are getting double the market yield but that's still quite a lot lower than the 10-year government bond yield in india which is over seven percent uh, and that's that from a value point of view, we compare dividend yields to the risk-free rate or the 10-year government bond yield. That and PE are our two favoured methods of, uh, of valuing businesses. So it is important that we're getting dividend growth um, to, to make up for the fact that the, the, the yield is the equity yield is lower than the, 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 that risk-free bond yield. So far, we have. Uh, so far, we've been uh, able to invest in companies that have been growing their dividends. We've got a nice blend. It does blend the whole portfolio. Uh, and, the por and the way we look at it is that the portfolio as a whole has to yield 20% more than the regional benchmark. And that will be made up of companies with lower yields where dividend growth is faster and some companies with higher yields where naturally it's reasonable to, 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 to accept that the growth will, will be lower. But our mini Indian portfolio has done very well. We've outperformed the Indian benchmark uh, for some time now. In fact, our best performing stock uh, in the last 18 months has been our largest holding in India, which is the largest holding in the portfolio, a company called ITC, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, gives us exposure to uh, uh, broad-based uh, exposure to, to consumption in, in, in India. Which is obviously uh, the biggest story. So. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, we've got about 17% in India. If you add that to our weighting in Australia, then just over 50% of the fund is in those two markets. And we see them as the best developing market in the region, India, and the best developed market in the region, Australia. Okay. Um, just in terms of sort of dividends potentially being a more important part of total returns going forward, a sort of growth more muted, it, is that the case in Asia? I mean, obviously, we've got 
a d- sort of you know developed market like the UK in terms of of dividends? Maybe it, it, is it all about the growth story in terms of dividend growth in Asia? If you see what I'm saying, yeah, it's a, it is a combination of the two. So the the, the portfolio is yielding roughly four and a half percent at the moment. Um, since we launched the fund back in March 2006, the yield has um, been just under 50% of total return. Mm-hmm. My growth has accounted for a bit over 50%. But there, there will, there are, there have been periods where the, the yield has been the bulk of the return. And obviously, if you if you have a, a year when the market or, or the fund goes down, then of course the yield is. It, it, Plays it plays a very important part. Um, over the long term, who knows? Maybe it will be 50-50. I don't, I'm not predicting anything, um, and we don't think we're not obsessed about that. Thinking what proportion of the total return will it be? Um, but we what we're trying to do is make sure the fund has an attractive yield today, and that there is a debt genuine growth story, uh, and that we know where those dividend increases will come from, i.e. off the back of earnings growth, as opposed to companies ratcheting up the power ratio to unsustainable levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you, obviously, the fund has sort of bias towards large cap names. Could you maybe explain why and, and what makes them more appealing? Yes. So, as I say, I've been investing in the region for 30 years now, and I used to invest in small and mid-cap stocks. But um, a number of years ago, I realized that I, I wasn't particularly good at that. Um, I realized that the attribution uh, when, when my over periods when my fund did well, it was the large cap stocks that really made the difference. And so when we launched the Asian Income Fund at Jupiter in March 2016, we cut out, I, I, I stopped investing in mid cap stocks that I had invested in, in previously at my previous firm. So we, we set a minimum size of three billion US dollars, but actually the vast bulk of the portfolio is in companies with a market cap of over ten billion dollars. And at that level, you tend to find much better liquidity in, in companies. And so if you do change your mind, you're able to get out relatively quickly. Um, companies tend to be better researched. They give they tend to give out more information to um, investors. You tend to be able to meet management more frequently. Um, but most importantly, it's not a barrier to further growth. Yeah. Just because a company has a market cap of even $50 billion, if the potential market cap is a trillion dollars, then you've got 20-fold to go. Um, and we've seen a number of companies in the US reach and exceed that trillion-dollar level. So what, what really matters is the total addressable market of a business, its market share, and its margins. Um, and we actually like companies that have already proven themselves. We don't mind the fact that we may have missed the first few years of high growth, um, because what we're looking, we're always looking ahead. And so it's sustainable growth that, that matters to us. Okay. Um, just before, just in terms of the opportunity, I mean, you've mentioned that you've been looking at, at this asset class for, for 30 years. Maybe let's talk in the past, say, 10, 15 years, just how much wider is the landscape in terms of you know, the large cap names that are offering these dividends have the liquidity now versus 10 years ago? Is the breadth of opportunity that much greater? It is greater than 10 years ago. I would say the, the period where there was the biggest difference was between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s, I 
95 to 2005, there was a huge sea change. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, it's been more an incremental improvement. So new companies listing, uh, existing companies maturing uh, and raising the dividends, but still offering a pathway to growth. Um, we tend to not invest in IPOs very often. I think there's only one stock in the portfolio that we invested uh, at an IPO in, in this in this fund. Um, but you know, more and more companies over time come to the market, and then and then we follow them, and then and then some some of them end up in the portfolio eventually. On the flip side, there's there's M and A, which takes some of the companies out of the market. We have one company in in our fund at the moment, Newcrest Mining, which has been bid for uh, by Newmont of the US. They're both gold miners. Um, now it may well be that we remain invested because it's a script offer, and that we, that we remain, but we haven't decided. Um, so yes, markets evolve, uh, economies evolve, uh, and the, what the way that we feel the portfolio should be structured over time that that, that evolves. But we, we certainly try and keep the process and the key characteristics as consistent as as is reasonable. And I just want to finish because it is really all about the companies in, in you know in general here. Um, maybe just talk us through a couple of examples of of holdings you have. Maybe one that demonstrates that regional growth that you're seeing, and then maybe one that's more of a you know a global player. Perhaps a couple of examples that that stand out for you in the portfolio at the moment. Well, over the last few years. DBS, which is a Singaporean-based bank, has done a very good job of expanding around the region. And it's certainly a, a, an Asian regional bank as opposed to a, a global bank. Um, and we like we like that. So it's it's expanded sometimes organically and sometimes via acquisition in countries like Taiwan, India. Uh, and now really it covers more or less the whole region, apart from Australia, where, where we can have it get exposure uh, separately. Uh, it doesn't actually have much in South Korea, but again, we have a separate holding there. Um, they've grown very well. They have good commitment to dividends um, and they have an attractive yield. Now, I'm not saying today is the best time to buy it and our weighting has come down a bit recently, but we, we, we continue to believe it's a good long-term story and it, and it has worked well over the last few years. Um, so that's a regional stock. In terms of global, um, the, the standard answer would be one of the big tech companies because Asia does tech, especially on the hardware side, very, very well. And, and I suppose if, if other people were answering your question, they, they'd probably jump to TSMC or Samsung Electronics, but I won't do that because that might be a bit boring. So I'm going to pick Macquarie Group in, in Australia. It's another financials business, but Macquarie is different from a lot of other financial companies in that it is the world's largest manager of green infrastructure assets for other pools of passive capital. But Macquarie have the expertise of, of managing uh, these uh, these assets largely via closed funds. So that it's it's an asset manager in in, in a real asset sense. Uh, it is a an investment manager. It does have a, an orthodox investment management. Uh, business. It's got an investment bank. And in Australia itself, it's um, got a a conventional commercial bank, which offers mortgages, etc. But roughly um, a third of its earnings come from North America, about 30% come from uh, Europe, Um, close to 30 
um, in Asia outside of, so, sorry, in in Australia, and then the rest in Asia outside of Australia. So uh, it, it, it does have a, a true global presence uh, now. And again, o- over the long term, it's done very well. And we think the next 10 years look exciting too. Okay. And I, I just wanted to quick close. I mean, so obviously we've seen income rise in the UK and in other parts of the world in, in the end of last year. I mean, just, just lastly for, for investors, what, what would be your message to them in terms of the, the benefits of Asian income as an alternative to UK and some of the home markets? Well, it, it gives you the ability to diversify your source of income and your currency exposure, um, but also, most importantly, to invest in a region that typically is growing faster than other parts of the world. So um, it, it, it gives you that three-way diversification. Um, over the long term, it has done well against most um, UK funds, particularly UK income funds, and indeed against global income funds. Um, so we feel we know what we're doing. Um, and we're happy with the performance numbers. Um, there are, of course, risks in this region, as there are all around the world. But we tend to focus on the, we tend to focus on the more developed markets. You know, we have quite a chunk of the portfolio in places like Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, um, and we we the the, the fund has a, a beta which is less than one, and typically. Again, looking backwards, it has typically done better, relatively well when when markets have fallen. It's had a lower drawdown, so it has been more defensive when when markets have gone backwards. That's not to say, and, to say cor- and, and corporate governance has improved quite a lot across the region as well. Yes, o- over time, I'd say that that has improved. Um, again, particularly amongst the larger companies, corporate governance uh, generally is, is pretty good. Okay. Uh, That's great, Jason. Thank you once again for joining us and talking to us about all things Asian income. Thank you, Chris. The Jupiter Asian Income Fund's higher developed market holdings, notably in Australia, as well as its income mandate, make it a relatively defensive Asia-Pacific option. Long-term UK investors looking for exposure to the region's enticing demographics, both now and into the future, may find the focus on dividend yield and dividend growth opportunities particularly attractive. For more information on the Jupiter Asian Income Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Caliber's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Caliber's research team only. 